I just received, and this is a literal count that went into my trash to find out how many thunderstorm and weather-related warnings I've received today since this morning. I've received 28 weather-related email warnings since this morning. 28. 28. Well, one of them stated uh, explicitly in the email that going outside could cause injury. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say that things have gone to beyond ridiculous, all right? Just letting you know. A rainstorm, 28. I got 28 warnings, weather-related warnings in one day. One day. There ain't even a tidal wave. Nothing. Nothing. So... Um, I don't know who's in charge of sending the emails out to the National Weather Service, but they should be fired or given some kind of a psychiatric eval. Somebody needs to take charge of that. So, having said that, welcome to Bible study. Great to see everybody, and uh, glad you're here. We're going to take a few moments to pray, and then we will get going. See what God wants to say has for us tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your care for us. We thank you that your concern for us. We thank you for the life that you've given us. We ask you, God, that you would lead us, direct us, empower us to receive all that you have for us. I pray, God, for an open heart, an open mind, that, God, our ears would be able to hear you tonight, our eyes would be able to see you. And I just ask you that we would receive, and I mean open ourselves to receive all that you have. So God, tonight we ask that you would speak, we'd be ready, willing, able to hear, and I pray God that you'd be glorified through this time. I pray for change, I pray God for a challenge in our hearts, I ask you God that our minds would change where they need to change, and I pray Father for growth and understanding. We ask you in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. And we have also received a speak pipe again this week, and so I'll play that for you. Kind of excited. This is Aaron in my Monday night group, and we just finished listening to the May 24th Monday night Bible study. It was super awesome, and uh, we just had some things that we wanted to share, so I passed my phone around. Hey, what's up? I'm Jeff. Um, So while I was listening to this, um, I saw this image of a guy swimming in the ocean and a boat next to him. And um, so I basically saw myself as the guy swimming, and Jesus is on the boat, and 
Every time I swim and I get very tired, he puts out his hand and I grab his hand and I can finally rest. And then once I'm rested, I leave the hand again and then I keep swimming again and then I get tired. And every time that it just keeps happening and um, um, it's just this picture of, of Jesus' hand. Every time I let it go, his hand just remains there and it's, open, it's there for the taking every time, irrespective of whether I leave it or not. And so throughout the, the, um, the podcast that we were listening to, I just felt this um, this theme go through, um, and I, I was really blessed by that. Um, and dan wil ek ook sommer net vannig sê, um, oor so ongeveer twee weke uh, word ons herinner aan 1776, en ek wil net hy Sorry, Sharice, that's where it cuts off. So uh, I'm not sure what happened with that, but uh, we had they had more people that shared, and it just cut off right there. So Sharice, I'm very sorry that cut off. Uh, there seems to be some other technical issue going on with that, but thank you, everybody, for sharing, and thank you for sending uh, that message on SpeakPipe. And so we're just really appreciative, glad you're listening. And uh, thank you for the the word and the vision that you gave. Uh, Chris, do you know what he said there at the end? Could you hear anything? Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't speak that language, but I was able to pick up something about uh, 1776 and uh, something to do with uh, the holiday. So... Um, I can let you listen to it later. Maybe you can tell us more what it says. But, uh, but anyway, that's exciting. Uh, Aaron, thank you for sending that out to us, and we look forward to hearing from you again. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible Study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E. Dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line. Uh, leave us a message. And we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If uh, anyone needs a Bible, uh, we can provide you with one. Or uh, you probably be able to find one on the table there. So Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. All right. Thanks for reading that. Uh, does anybody have a King James version of the Bible or some older version? They can read that uh, on your digital Bible. Dust it off. I form the light and create darkness, and make peace and create evil. I will do all these things. All right. So thank you for reading that. 
And and so this verse, uh, I use this verse, and some of you that have heard the foundational teachings, this is one of the verses that I use is we're beginning to explore who God is. And we're really taking seriously that He is the one true God. And so all things that we know, all things that we have understanding of, He is the Creator. And He's the Creator of all of those things. And so uh, using this verse begins to challenge our ideas about who God is, uh, what He's done, what His power is about, and it begins to challenge our ideas about what we believe uh, concerning uh, concepts such as good, concepts such as evil, light, darkness, looking at contrasts, and understanding that God has created all things. Uh, in other words, things don't just appear. It, they just don't happen by themselves. And so we, there's a causality, there's a purpose behind it. And I can remember I, I was doing the foundational teachings. I was planting a ministry uh, at Cornell University. And uh, part of the way that we planted the ministry there is uh, we were working with local churches and, and there was a faculty group that was a part of the university structure that were Christians. And so we had representatives from local churches come and this faculty group, uh, many of the, the faculty from Cornell uh, were coming to these meetings. We had four meetings during the summer, the summer prior to starting, uh, really planting the ministry there. And we were just laying a foundation, a foundation of this is what we believe, this is how we go about things, uh, this is how this is going to look. And so uh, I, I systematically went through the foundational teachings, and part of the foundational teachings, of course, is Isaiah 45, 7. It's not a big part of it, it's just part of looking at who God is. And so um, I had somebody read the verse, uh, and they read it out of it. They happened to read it out of an older version, like a King James or something. And as was read, the, the verse says, it makes a statement, it says, I, the Lord, uh, have created light and darkness, and he creates prosperity. And But there's this one part of it, where it says, I, the Lord, create evil. Alright? And as soon as that was read, I can remember there was a reaction in the, in the room. One of the female faculty members just spoke up and said, that's not right. Well, I hadn't even said anything yet, right? I mean, we just read the verse. And she just came out like, that's not right. Like, well, you can't really say that. And I was nice about it. You know, I'm like, I don't know if you really want to say that. Because you believe in the Bible, right? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, well, okay. Well, you know, you can't pick and choose. You can't say, I like that verse, but I don't like that verse. Or I like what that says, but I don't like what that says. Is that how it works? And so I'm not sure you really want to say that. I know that was your first reaction, but I'm not sure you really want to like stick by that first reaction. I want you to think about that for a second. And and we it just opened up a door for discussion uh, about like well what do we really believe about God? And then that was really what I was trying to open up was that door. And the door was it's like well where do you think things came from? Where do you think everything comes from? I mean everything. 
And and the idea behind it is like you can try to explain it away, but that's not really I don't think beneficial. There's no no benefit to it. And I wanted to just make this statement before I started the study because I don't want you by by me teaching what I'm about to teach. I don't want you to think I'm trying to explain this away because I'm not. I, I believe that it says what it says. I just believe it, and I believe that that God has created literally created everything literally I mean you think of what would you consider evil incarnate like what would you consider evil like who would you consider evil the devil Satan right Lucifer who created Lucifer God did right so you know and you can say well he made his own choices well did God know he was going to make those choices before he created him yeah of course he did so I mean, we can we can look at this in, all, in any way you want to try to look at it, and I'm, and I'm seriously not trying to explain it away, but I, I want you to begin to think more broadly about who God is, more broadly about His power, more broadly about His authority, more broadly about um, the the expression of that power and what that actually looks like. To begin to understand that that you know before he formed the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1 that there was nothing nothing and so there's a complete blank slate there's nothing there until creation and so whatever he created and whatever continues to be created by that word is still being created and we're living in that creation today and so the, the thing that you can take comfort in is that there's nothing beyond that which he spoke into existence. And so no matter what you're talking about, he's Lord over it. No matter what you're talking about, no matter the, the, the most terrible of things or the, or the most awesome of things, the, the, the horrific, the, the blessed, whatever you want to look at, He's, he's preeminent over all of it. All of it. And there is nothing outside of what He can affect and do. Nothing. So, in Isaiah 45, 7, okay, that's the verse we're looking at. Uh, there's uh, Tim asked me uh, today if I've been working in uh, Led Zeppelin quotes into my teachings. And so I looked at my notes for this. This was, this was I'd written this notes long before you asked me that question. You know what the first point I had here written in in my notes? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, and so we, we had a good discussion about what quotes you can use and what ones you can't. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the ones you can. All right. So good times, bad times, and, and that's kind of a, an interesting uh, take on where we stand as far as God's concerned and how we how we perceive what goes on around us. Because we tend to uh, lump things into broader and and then more narrowing categories in our life. It's the way that we somehow 
will assign meaning to the world that we live in. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's just a technique that we use in order to understand the world that we live in. It's a technique that we use to to assign some kind of meaning and feel some kind of comfort to to bring order to the world around us. Uh, and and that's okay. That's okay. The the issue becomes when our definitions and our order supersede that which God has done. And see, that's where the mistake is made. It's all right to, to begin to, to order some things. It's okay to, to, to understand some things. But as we begin to better understand how God has ordered things, and as we begin to better understand how God has set things in place, as we begin to better understand how God sees things, we need to allow those things to supersede whatever it is that we've been using to help us understand. All right? So in other words, all right, so this is how God sees things. All right, well, that's in conflict with how I see things. Well, something needs to give. You need to give. Your idea needs to give way. Your perception needs to give way. And, and the problem with that is sometimes that we look at that and it feels unsafe. But there's no bigger safety, there's no greater safety than taking in what God has said. There's no greater safety than understanding the world the way God understands the world, and the way that He has for us to understand, see things the way He sees things, to understand things the way He understands things, to have a perspective in a similar fashion as to the way that He has a perspective on things. Now, I'm not saying that's true of everything, because some things we just can't see and know. Like, uh, we, we can't see all of eternity at once. We just can't. And so, that, that's not even possible. So, to, to try and do that is fruitless. But there are things that we can see. There are things in ways that we can understand things. Ways that we can see the world. Ways that we can understand what's going on around us better. And it's always safer and it's always better to take hold of what we can take hold of in the way he sees things, understands things, and he wants us to see things and perceive things. So to give way to revelation is a good thing. To give way to his understanding is a good thing. To give way to the way he wants us to see things, the way he sees things, it's a good thing. And we have to begin to see it as a good thing, to train ourselves that as we understand things, as things are revealed to us, as things are brought into our understanding, that it's a process that we're comfortable with to let go of what we said or seen or understood and take in what he's saying and the understanding that he wants to give us and make it a natural part of our growing process in Christ. So as you read this verse in Isaiah 45, 7, there's, a, there's two words used there. There's the word form and the word create. And it says God forms things and He creates things. Those are two different words. The word form means to give form to previously existing matter. Like, so, in other words, something already exists, but he gives form meaning. He gives uh, uh, order to it. So, in other words, and we're going to come back to this example, you find clay. And Kim, Kim Bunch does uh, work with clay. How does clay come when you buy it? In a solid lump. That's a lump, right? What's a lump? It's like a rectangle, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, the, the matter is there. But then it has to be worked, it has to be put on a wheel, 
and then your hands have to skillfully form it into whatever it is you're going to make out of it. Yeah. You follow that? All right. So that's the forming. That's when the Bible talks in this verse about forming things. It's God forming that thing out of something that matter exists, but it just doesn't look like it's going to look at the end. So he brings order to it. He, he brings some kind of a form to it that's usable, that's understandable, that makes some kind of sense. That's what he does. And so that's the forming part. Then the other word that's used in there is create. And that word create is a different word than form, and it means to create from nothing or from chaos. And so the idea is, is that that which is in chaos, that which is nothing, he speaks and then forms it, he creates it from nothing. All right, so there's no lump. It's just bang, there's a vase. Or whatever it is you're going to make. A cup or whatever you want to imagine that you're making. So those are the two words that are used there. The other thing I want to, to the point out, good times, bad times, that was my first note. Well, good times are often described as light. And light represents a few things. It represents peace and happiness and knowledge and innocence and purity and prosperity in the Bible. That's how you see light. It represents all, it represents all those things and more. And darkness, that would be the bad times piece of that. So you got the good times, you got the light. you got the bad times, you have the darkness. And the darkness uh, represents disappointment, adversity. It represents uh, night. And, and I want you to think about that darkness. It could be ignorance, too. But you think about how, how God literally formed light and dark during creation. Do you understand that? And so he literally formed those things by his word. And, and so they represent whatever they represent, but it's literally that it was formed by him. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, if you want to look it up. But the Lord creates those things. And they're literally formed by him. And so we have this idea of preeminence. And preeminence is an important concept when it comes to Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that the Father, God, has made Jesus preeminent over all. And there's, the reason that's important is because that word, what that indicates, and, and this is the misuse that people have all the time. You know, people will talk about, it's like, well, Jesus needs to be number one in your life. They'll say things like that. Well, that's not exactly true. Yeah, you should be number one, but what does that really mean? Well, the idea of preeminence is that you can have a list. Let's say you have the top ten things in your life. And, and so some teachings would suggest, say, okay, well, Jesus needs to be number one. Well, the idea of preeminence isn't that Jesus is number one. The idea of preeminence is that whatever your top ten list is, that's your top ten list, but Jesus is over all of it. In other words, he's preeminent over the 10, the 20, the 30 things, over the whole deal. So he's not just number one. He's over number one. He's over number two. He's over number three. He's over number four. He is preeminent. He comes before any ranking system. He comes above any ranking system you have in your life about what's most important or what's important to you, or what your next move is, or what it is that you want to do, or where it is you want to go, and all of those things. 
He is preeminent over everything, every decision, every move, every value that you could possibly have in your life. He's preeminent. And so what this verse is saying and what this verse is exerting is is exerting God's preeminence over all. It asserts His dominion over everything. So His dominion is over good, bad, light, dark, nice, not nice, evil, all of it. Every bit of it. Now, the reason this was important to Isaiah and as he prophesied this to the people he was prophesying to is that it was drawing a contrast to the religions of the day. There was among the Persians, the Magi, specifically within the Persians. Now, how do you know the word Magi? Who are the Magi? They were the kings that came to to see Jesus and present Him with gifts. They had seen a star and they somewhat worshipped the stars, read the stars, they saw the star and they followed the star and they ended up and they came to worship and to give gifts to Jesus. That's the Magi. Well, they represent a religion. And it's a Persian religion. Where's Persia? Anybody know? Modern day Iran. Right. So they came all the way from Iran as part of the religion of that time that they believed that there were two supreme, co-eternal, independent causes that acted in opposition to one another. That was their belief. That was their religion. This might sound familiar to some of you because some of you came out of versions of Christianity that has adapted or adopted both this perspective. And it is not a Christian perspective. It's not a Hebrew perspective. It has nothing to do with what we believe in. And that's why Isaiah was prophesying these, these verses. He's prophesying to the people, letting them know that this mess that I'm describing to you has nothing to do with what we believe. Nothing. Because they believe that these two supreme, co-eternal, independent causes act in opposition to one another one is the author of good or light and the other is the author of evil darkness and so they explain that when the light or when the good is winning the battle then things go well but when the darkness or the evil is winning the battle things go poorly but because they're equal sometimes one wins sometimes the other wins and that's how they explain good times, bad times. Right. So, what Isaiah is doing here, what God is doing through the prophet Isaiah, is letting us know that is not correct. That there are not two supreme beings that are acting in opposition to one another. There's only one supreme being. And He's over it all. Over it all. He is preeminent over good times, bad times, light and dark, all of it. Now, if you think about it, can you begin to see 
how some of the religion of your upbringing was was somehow affected by the religion of the Magi, this Persian religion. Can you kind of see it? Because I, I think that that as, as you begin to think about it, it's like how have I been affected by this? You know, even the whole idea of of how we're saved has somehow been corrupted in some of this. Yeah, I'll never forget, I've shared this before, but uh, way back when Saturday Night Live was funny, you know, back in the old days. Yeah, I know. I know, but way back in the old days, there used to be a, a reoccurring character that would come on to the, the weekend update, Father Guido Sarducci. All right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd get on, he had the big thick glasses and he had the hat and everything. And I remember one night I'm listening to it and he's explaining, you can YouTube this, Father Guido, uh, but he's explaining like how people get saved from his perspective. And he's talking about how there's a giant scale, I can't do his accent, but there's a giant scale and good stuff you do is over here, the bad stuff you do is over here, but if you do the good stuff a little bit more than the bad stuff, it weighs it in your favor and you're good. And that's how you explain it. Yeah, that's not how it works, though. <laughs> that's just not how it works. It's never worked that way. It's not working that way. And it will never work that way. And yet, that permeates thought. That permeates the way that we see things. That permeates how we, we choose or allow ourselves to be tricked into understanding the world that we live in. It just doesn't work that way. Christ is our righteousness. You know, we, we have faith in Christ, uh, that we're saved by faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, none of those things make any sense, and yet there's a part of us like, oh, yes. Thank you, Guido. No, it's not right. Just like this isn't right. The, the, these, these fighting it out. It's like, it's like we tried to make the devil as strong as God, but he's not. We try to, to make them somehow co-eternal and, 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 and sometimes one wins, sometimes the other wins. The devil never wins. Never. He's never victorious. He's been a loser since the start. He's been losing ever since. We serve a God that is preeminent over everything. Everything. And if we can really grab hold of that, that's going to boost the authority that we begin to realize that we have in Him. Whether externally it looks like we got good times or bad times, or light or darkness, or whatever the situation we find ourselves in, He is preeminent over that situation. And there is an authority in understanding that. There's an authority in living in that. There is authority and there is a victory in understanding that that is the God that we serve. There he is, ruling and reigning. So God creates them all. All of man's comforts, all of man's calamities come from God's hand under his direction and nothing is haphazard. Nothing. Now whether you want to take comfort in that, that's up to you. I do. I take comfort in that my life is not being affected by just haphazard stuff. 
But the things that I face, the things that challenge me, the things that bless me, the things that, that cause me to have to drop to my knees in prayer, the things that are, are awesome and the things that I hate all come from His hand. They all come from His hand or under His direction. Now, I want you to think about the whole idea of creating evil. Like, yeah. I already gave you the example of the devil, right? Where did the devil come from? God's hand. God's hand. And I mean, I'm giving you kind of this this huge overview of perspective. Because from our perspective, you can look at it and say, well, but he had free will, you know, he made his decisions. But we know that God knew that. We know that. And so you can't really explain it away that way. It's convenient to say that. It's convenient. And you've heard me talk about this before. It's like, it's like you know, people will say things like, uh, well, if, if God's so good, why is there so much evil in the world? And your prescribed answer as a Christian is, well, you know, God created man with free will. And whatever man want to do, they just do whatever they're going to do. And so sometimes it comes out evil. Because because they, they exercise their free will and they just it's just evil. When really, I don't know that's the best answer. It is an answer. And it satisfies most people when you say that. You know, when you explain how God didn't make us robots and, and so He makes us so that we can choose what we want to do. And sometimes people choose the wrong things. Sometimes people choose the evil things. Sometimes people choose the thing that is going to hurt somebody else. And that's why there's so much evil in the world. I mean, that that satisfies most people. Uh, the issue to me is this, that the real problem with the question is, if God if God is so loving, then why is there so much evil? The, the real issue with that question is the judgment involved in it. It's like, oh, so it's too evil for you. Like, in other words, you've decided that it's all evil and bad, and so if you were God, you would do it differently. Is that what you're telling me? See, that's the real issue. The real issue is not finding ourselves under the hand of God. For anybody that says something like that, they're not finding themselves under God's hand. In other words, they're saying, they're making a judgment against God's decisions and what God does and how He does things, and they're saying, without saying it, if they were God, they would do it differently. Because they're obviously more loving than God is. Because they don't believe He is, but they are, so they would do it differently if it were up to them. That's the real problem. And if I was smarter than God, I wouldn't worship Him either. The real issue in those questions has to do with finding ourselves under His hand or not. And if we're not going to find ourselves under His hand, then we're probably more loving, we're probably smarter, we probably would do things differently, we'd probably have a better idea, and you know what? You'll never worship a God that you're smarter than. Never. You'll never worship a God that you're more loving than. You will never worship a God that you know more than. Never, ever, ever. And so, you don't really. And neither do any of those people. And so, I can explain away why there's evil in the world, but it would be at the expense of not confronting the real issue in the question. And the real issue in the question is their judgment and their superiority to God. This verse forces us into a situation where we're going to either be superior to Him and smarter than Him 
and better than Him, more moral than Him, we're going to find ourselves judging Him or we're going to find ourselves submitting under His hand. One or the other. To me. And if there's one thing that I really, really, really have a passion for is raising up people that are submitting themselves under the hand of God. Because those are the people that God's going to use to change the world that we live in. They're going to change people's lives. They're going to change situations around them. They're going to be used by God. Because once we realize He's the one in control, once we realize that He's the one that has the better idea, once we realize that He's the one that's more loving, that's smarter, that has the better plan, we're going to find ourselves in a position of obedience a lot more easily than the person who really, deep down inside, will never admit it, that really believes they're smarter than Him. More loving, they know more, however they want to put that. So evil here is, is, is the idea of the evil is that I create evil. Well, it's an evil that is opposed to peace or prosperity. And it's a suffering. But he creates that. And and I don't know how that doesn't make any sense to us. I mean, look at look at Jesus. I mean, Jesus had it easy, right? Right? Nothing bad happened to Jesus. I mean, he's God's son. So he was living on easy street, making a ton of money and, and, and living it out, right? That is the gospel, isn't it? Life is easy? Yeah. No, that's not. Because if you look at Jesus, he suffered. If you look at Jesus, they killed him. He died. He was arrested. He was humiliated. He was beaten. Falsely accused. Falsely convicted. Left to the hands of a mob. Had to carry the instrument of death. Was nailed to a cross and died a horrifying, gruesome death on that cross. Alright, well, well, Andy, he had a special purpose. Okay. But look at his special purpose. Was a horrifying death on a cross. Alright? Well, we call ourselves Christians, right? It means Christ like. Well, what does that mean? That means it's not always going to be the best in our brains. It's not always going to go our way. It's not going to always be easy. It's not going to always be what the world would consider to be prosperous. It's not going to be, you know, all the things that we've been taught, you know, that, oh, this is what being a Christian is. No. No. Because our example. The best example that we have suffered. Alright, alright, well what about the apostles? They had it easy, right? uh, so, So Jesus suffered once and for all, and so the rest of us could live in peace and prosperity for the rest of our lives. Well, what about the apostles? Nope. They were all killed for their faith except for one. The one in prison. Every single one of them died as martyrs except for the one guy in prison. Wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that they lived their lives in such a way that they were like Jesus? Yeah, they did. And they died like Him too. 
maybe not exactly like him, but pretty gruesomely. So why, where does this expectation come from? Now, I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard about how you know it's supposed to be something else. I've heard a lot of them. And it sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. And you can use verses where it talks about that. And I believe there's, there's some truth into some of it. But you can't ignore Jesus and the apostles. You can't. You just can't. And so if we can't ignore them, and we can't ignore what happened to them, we need to come to some kind of a conclusion that God has other plans. And we can't always understand all of His plans, but we find ourselves submitting under His hand with a trust and a faith, faith, faith that allows us to live in obedience to that. Okay. That's really faith. That's really faith. That's what it is. That's where it comes from. That's what it is. And so, what God does is He wants to hush the contending passions that we have. Because we all have contending passions in our lives. We all have stuff that rises up and says, oh, go do this. And we have stuff that says, no, go do that. Or all these other things. He wants to hush that in our lives. And what He replaces that with, and the way that He hushes that, is that, that He reminds us that all those contending passions, all of them, are under His control. They're all under His hand. And so we find ourselves in this simple position that where we're, we're called to be obedient in the midst of it all. We're called to lay down our, our big time figuring it out. We're called to lay down our big time trying to come up with a better idea. We're called to lay down our big time judgments of good and evil and all those things like that. And we find ourselves under the hand of God and obeying what He has to say. Instead of making something up, which is what we do. That's what we do. You, you sit there long enough, you don't want to obey what He has for you, you will make something up. And you'll just keep making stuff up. And keep making stuff up. And keep making stuff up. So you don't have to do what He's told you to do. It's simple. It's the human way. It's what we do. And, and so the idea, and I'm going to come back to this idea of, of, of the potter. We are but earthen pots and we're broken. And, and the way that we get broken is our own contention with God. That's really how we break. And, and some people break in their spirit. Some people break in their mind. Some people break in their physical bodies. But as we contend with God, there is a breaking that takes place. And, and I know we don't normally see it that way or we don't normally understand it that way, but understanding that that's where the breaking is, the breaking is in us fighting the impossible fight. Now, I can't use this example very much anymore because the number of people that have actually been in a physical fight is really small these days. But it used to be you could make a statement like, well, if you ever fought anybody that's that much bigger than you and they whoop your butt, that's how you get broken. 
And people don't understand. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it is how you get broken. And the impossible fight is when we decide that we're going to contend with the living God. Because contending, contending with God, it's as senseless as for clay to find fault in the potter. The clay is a lump. And so whatever the potter decides to do with that clay, that's up to the potter. The clay doesn't have much say in that. It has no say in that. And if the potter decides to make something and it doesn't turn out the way that they want it to turn out, what can they do? Kim? If you if you got a clump of clay and you're trying to form it into something, it's not forming the way you want it, what can you do? You smash it back. Yeah. Yeah, you smash it back down and you start over again. That's correct. That's your prerogative as the potter. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's God's prerogative. And the clay doesn't have any say in it. Never had any say in it. Never will have any say in it. That is it. That's the senseless, senseless idea of trying to contend or find fault in the potter. So I look at, uh, keep your finger there in Isaiah, but look at Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, verses 5 through 10. Basically, that, the, those verses in Jeremiah, you know, and, and I don't know if you can hear what he's saying, but he's saying, I do what I want. That's what he's saying. And he's telling them, he's like, and don't you dare judge me for doing what I want. It is well within my rights and prerogatives to do whatever it is I want to do. Period. Period. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he's, he's telling him, he's like, get this in your head, in your heart, and in your spirit, that I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. He's going to do it. Well, I don't like that. He doesn't care. Right? Well, I can't speak for him, but, you know, it doesn't seem like it. He's going to do what he's going to do, whether you like it or don't. He's going to do what he's going to do. Whether you think it's the right thing or not, he's going to do what he's going to do. Whether or not you think it's something that you would have done or not, he's going to do what he's going to do. And we need to find ourselves in him. We need to find ourselves in the midst of that will, that purpose, that plan. We need to find ourselves in the midst of who he is. That's on me and you. To apply our faith, our trust in him whether we understand it or we don't. Somebody look at Romans 9.11. Romans 9.11. 
Romans 9, 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works... That's all right. Whatever you want to do. All right. Now, that verse, you you can say, oh, he's making a commentary on the Old Testament. Yeah. You know what his commentary is? It's what we're talking about tonight. His commentary is, is that you got twins, and while they were still in the womb. In other words, you can't pin it on anything that Jacob did. You can't pin it on anything that Esau did. You can't pin it on any of those things. We want. Oh, you, I want clarity. I want. I want to know why this happened. You know why it happened? Because he said so. Because that's what he wanted. That was it. And 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 that's what Paul was trying to tell people. He's like, you want to judge this. You want to try to figure this out. And there was a whole tradition within what he was taught and how he learned and how he came up under under the rabbi that he was trained under. They tried to explain these things and tried to point out these things and say, well, this is why this happened or, or this is the purpose behind this or whatever it was. And what he's saying is, no, th- there is no purpose like that. You can't look at it like that. You can't try to explain it away or try to understand it in those terms. He's like, before they were even born, God said, this is the way it's going to be. Period. And all of those arguments and all of those things that we're trying to explain away, all those things that we're trying to, to, to say, oh, well, this is why, or, or this is how it, why he felt the way he did toward Esau, or this is the way he felt toward Jacob, all those things like that, no. Stop. Just stop it. You know, I think of another book in the Bible people have all kinds of trouble with, the book of Job. The current Bible reading program that I'm going through right now, we're going through Job. I think I'm on my fourth time through right now. In this particular, in this year, and people have such a hard time with Job because they want to try to figure out, okay, how, why? How, how did Job? I mean, why? Why is God this way toward Job? Well, that whole book is about this idea: God does what He wants. All right. You look at that and say, "Well, the devil did that to him." Yeah, well, God's permission, and under God's limitations, and under God's circumstances, and God told him His parameters. He did what He did. You look at it and say, well, yeah, but I mean, Job must have done something. No. Job was the, one of the most righteous men alive. It wasn't he did anything. We don't like that. We don't like that. We judge that. We don't want that. And yet, one of the earliest books, one of the, the most primitive books in the Bible, Job, is teaching this same lesson that you see in Isaiah. We need to learn it. We need to learn it. We need to allow God in our own hearts, our own minds, our spirit to let Him be preeminent. Just let it happen. Any peace that we have with God is through Jesus. That's it. It's not by stuff we do. It's not by how we act. 
not through, you know, some magic prayer or anything else. Peace between us and God is through Jesus and Jesus alone. i got a bunch of verses here and then we'll, we'll end this. But I want to lay some New Testament foundation. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Ten Corinthians five, eighteen and nineteen. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Alright. A basic verse uh, about reconciliation, us being ambassadors of reconciliation, verse twenty. Uh, but the idea is God's reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. So what does it have to do with? It's not. It doesn't have anything to do with how good we act. It doesn't have anything to do with somehow balancing out good over bad in our life or something like that. It's just Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the reconciliation. And he gives us the task of bringing that message of reconciliation to the world around us. But if somehow we have it mixed up in our minds, we're not going to be very good at that. If it's somehow mixed up in our head about how we're reconciled to God and what that means, then we're, we're going to be really bad at sharing that with the people that are around us. It's just Jesus. And it's his ministry. It, it's his life. It's his sacrifice. It's what he's done that reconciles us to God. And, and so for us to take any credit or somehow somehow put ourselves into that process is taking away from what Jesus has done and bringing confusion to something very simple that God has said. And that is our reconciliation is everything. is everything to do with Jesus. Can okay, someone look at Romans chapter 5? And I'm going to guess verse 10, but I guess it could be verse 16. Let's go with verse 10. My pen fell off the page when I was writing this. Romans 5. Let's try 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. All right. So, enemies, you get that? Reconciled by Jesus. Okay? There's no, there's nothing else in there, is there? You read that verse? Is that a simple enough verse? Do you understand what I'm trying to get at here? It's like, the complication of it is only in our minds. The complication of it is only in some form of deception religious deception that's as old as the old Persian Empire. I'm probably older than that. That's the only confusion in this. It's just a deception. A simplicity is important because it helps us to understand what really matters. Someone want to look at Romans 9.11? Yeah. 
Oh, sorry. I had you read that already. Sorry. Somebody look at, uh, excuse me, Colossians one twenty. Sorry about that. All right, so so that verse begins to expand this reconciliation. And, and so where is this reconciliation? Things on earth, things in heaven. All reconciliation is through Christ. All of it. There is nothing that's reconciled that's not reconciled through Christ. On heaven and earth it is all through Him. Last verse, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. Alright, so so that verse tells us that the reconciliation between people and between people and God is found in Jesus. And that's it. And that's all there is to it. So, no matter what the issue is, reconciliation is through Christ. And so it simplifies the answer of what we're facing. Andy, you don't understand what I'm facing. And I don't. But I do know this. And as simple as this is going to sound, Jesus is the only answer to it. It's as simple as that. Now, I could could try to make that more complicated. I could try to to help you see it more complicated because it make you feel better, but it's not more complicated. Jesus is the answer to it. He is the answer to the problems that we face between one another. He's the answer to the problems that we face with God, the dividing that takes place between one another and the dividing that takes place between us and God. He is the only answer. And that's it. And the reason that, and I hope you can follow, the reason that that makes sense is because he's the author of it all. He's the author of everything. He's preeminent over everything. Therefore, he's the answer. There is none other. All right, let's take a few moments to pray. And I pray that makes sense to you somehow. For some of you, you're saying, why do you keep talking about this? Because you don't get it. That's why. Alright, I get it. But I, I need you to get it. Some of you get it, I know. But I'm praying for that day that we all come into that place of simplicity and obedience.
I'm praying for that day that we leave behind the old ways, the religious ways that we were indoctrinated in and take hold of a simplicity in Christ. I'm praying for that day. And I believe every time I teach something like this, it brings us a step closer in our own hearts, our lives, to leaving behind stuff that doesn't matter and stuff that actually hinders us and taking up some things that actually are going to simplify and help us, make us more effective for the kingdom. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would break through lies, deceptions, religious nonsense in our minds. And I ask God a simple truth, your simple truth to cut through all of those areas of confusion, all those areas of excuses and lies, all those areas of pride, all those areas that are just disobedience that is clothed in whatever it is we've clothed it in. But I pray, Lord, a joyful and simple obedience to the one who's preeminent. Because, God, we can't really see everything and understand everything. We can't know everything. We can't uh, have uh, that kind of a knowledge or that kind of a sight. But, God, we can trust you. And so I pray you would build that trust in our hearts. You build that trust in our lives where we just find ourselves in the midst of you, trusting you, believing you, and recognizing you as preeminent over the stuff we understand and the stuff we don't, the stuff that makes us happy and the stuff that makes us sad, the stuff that we consider blessing and the stuff that we consider suffering. But you are preeminent over it all. Tonight we thank you, Jesus, for your work of reconciliation, your life-giving work to us. I pray tonight we find rest and we find peace in you, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of what people are saying, regardless of how it looks, regardless of how it feels. I pray, God, we find a peace and a rest in you. Teach us to dwell there. Teach us to dwell in you. Find our life in you. We give you thanks and praise tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. 
episodes in Syracuse, New York to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.